So, good evening again. This talk will be a follow-up from last week. And together, the two talks were supposed to be on mindfulness with breathing and practicing emptiness. However, last week I didn't quite get to the second part. It was more uh, certain ways to get into the breathing and to develop samadhi or a mind that's stable, alert, centered, grounded, calm, and so on. So that wasn't quite directly about practicing with emptiness. However, adequate samadhi is pretty much required for for developing a deepening awareness of of emptiness so i kind of figured i could get away with um working that in last week however this week i will be focusing on using breath breath-based mindfulness practice especially as taught in the buddha's discourse on mindfulness with breathing and how that contributes in various ways to the practice of sunyata, emptiness, or, or voidness. Perhaps, unfortunately, I had a lot of time this afternoon to rest here and scribble notes, so I have more notes than usual. Um, so we'll, I'll, I'll try to get you out on time. First, it's probably good to review or revisit the word emptiness or the Pali term as well as Sanskrit is sunyata. Sunya means free, void, empty. And understanding how it's used in Buddhism is is very crucial to both our understanding of the Buddha's teaching, as well as our practice. For example, in one, one passage, the Buddha said, unless a teaching is permeated with or accompanied by sunyata, it's not really the Buddha's teaching. Um, now, what that does with a lot of things that have are supposedly from the Buddha, I'll, I won't go into tonight. But there are a number of points where the Buddha, and this is in Theravada Buddhism, by the way, not Mahayana. It's in the, the very old Pali teachings where Sunyata actually has a very important place. So what does this emptiness or voidness refer to? Often it's frightening for for us, and not just here in America. Many Thais, for example, find it kind of scary. Like, what do you mean I don't exist? Or, what do you mean there's nothing? What about my children? Or, what about uh, rebirth in the next life? And so on. Whatever we value, whether wise or unwise, it can be a little 
frightening if we hear this, well, emptiness, what, what's, what's that about? Where does that leave me? Where does that leave my aspirations? Where does that leave my career, my retirement, um, my passage into future lives, rebirth in some nice heavenly mansion on the Cape or wherever? <laughs> I was just on Martha's Vineyard. Maybe that's where you want to go. Um, I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> Not sure what kind of rebirth that will be. But the Cubs have been doing okay this year, so it, it might be looking up. Um, anyway, sunyata, whether we translate it as emptiness or voidness, and by the way, both of those terms have a connotation of freedom. Freedom's not a proper linguistic translation, but when we hear emptiness or voidness, we should understand it with connotations of freedom. But that kind of begs the question, free from or of what? Empty of what? Void of what? Because um, this is the question that, if not clarified, can often foster confusion. For example, sometimes... Emptiness is construed as a kind of nothingness or even nihilism, which there is a specific word for in early Buddhism, and the Buddha considered it wrong understanding. Uh, natika or natita aditi, uh, the view that there is nothing. Um, this nihilism was not invented by uh, 19th century European philosophers. It's been around a lot longer than that. And, but that's not what emptiness is about. The Buddha considered any statement that things exist, things exist to be going too far in one direction or things don't exist, don't exist, goes too far in the other Similarly, the views of eternalism, that there is something about us that exists eternally, or that there is something about us that is destroyed or annihilated at some point, like at death. Both of those are um, mistaken views based in some theory about self, that there's some me to last or there's some me to end. Well, his teaching was lots of things exist, lots of things happen, but the happening is all a process of ongoing change, conditionality. And so in that, we can't find some separate, isolatable element, agent, substance that we can hold on to as self, as my true essence, my real being, me, mine, self, whatever. And this is what emptiness or sunyata is about. It means that everything, including God, if there is such a thing, um, or whatever we might refer to when we use the word God, or Nibbana, the 
highest reality in Buddhist teachings, or the Buddha, or the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or any of the revered things are empty of me, of mine, of self, or anything connected with self. Which kind of means there's no nothing you can grab onto and own, control, possess these things. And these things includes all things or everything. Sometimes we say things are empty of inherent existence. Things have a provisional existence. Especially we're talking about what we experience through consciousness, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, remember, dream. All of these have a certain existence, which is provisional, conditional, relational, dependent on other things. So whatever existence our bodies, our breathing, our feelings, our thoughts have, whatever existence your your names, identities, careers, salaries, um, stock options, whatever existence these things have is very provisional, transient, conditional. So none of them can exist on their own. And so there's no self that's responsible for their existence. There's just the coming together of causes and conditions, phenomena arise and pass away. So this is what emptiness primarily refers to, the empty or void nature of everything. And to not make it overly philosophical, it's really about these bodies, these minds, the experience of life from moment to moment, conceptions about the past or future, including beliefs in rebirth or beliefs that there is no rebirth. All that, all that goes on in what we conventionally refer to as me is fundamentally not me. But being not me doesn't mean they don't exist. So emptiness is not nothingness, but it's a lack of, of un, there's no unchanging substance, self, or agent involved. So this is primarily um, about an insight into the reality of things, but it's also about the mind that has this insight because the mind that can see or experience emptiness is empty in another sense, which is the primary concern of early Buddhism. So emptiness also refers to the mind-heart that is empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. So... On one hand, all things are empty of some, some substance or selfhood that can be grasped as me or mine. And 
the consciousness, mind, awareness that experiences empty things is empty of the illusion of me or mine and therefore is free of any egoistic activities such as greed, hatred, and delusion. So there's a kind of experiential side to it and there's the sort of existential or um, semi-existential or side of it. And sometimes Nibbana, which is most often in, Bo- in early Buddhism described as the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, is called the highest emptiness or the supreme unsurpassable emptiness, which I think is important because some later tendencies in Buddhism have turned emptiness into a philosophical proposition. But in early Buddhism, it was meant as a practical, liberating awareness. And so the emptiness that finally matters is when our life is empty of selfishness, greed, anger, fear, pride, envy, and all that egoistic stuff, which means our life is empty of the craving and clinging that generates greed, hatred, and delusion. This kind of hooks up with what I was talking about last week in that for the mind to be empty in any um, lasting way, There are moments of emptiness that are just part of the flow of life. The mind can't kind of stay stuck in ego forever because ego is a construct. It's not there. It's just this projection onto reality due to ignorance. And so in the flow of experience, there are many moments of emptiness. But to focus on and stay in those moments and explore them requires a mind that is very stable, clear, alert, that is the mind that is called samadhi, which is translated concentration, but that kind of doesn't quite get the whole package, but anyway. And so the mind that is properly stable, concentrated, integrated, alert, clear, bright, is able to see the inherent emptiness of things and therefore doesn't fall into the old habit of clinging to things as me and mine. And when there's no clinging, then that mind is also empty of illusions of selfhood and then the emotional reactivity that comes when we we misapprehend experience in terms of me and mine. So that's a review of what emptiness is about, more or less. And for the rest of this talk, what I'll try to do is reflect on how the practice of mindfulness with breathing, or anapanasati, 
as taught in the early suttas, can lead into the these um, insights into emptiness as well as the experience of being empty or free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And in doing so, I'll be kind of uh, bouncing two of the Buddha's discourses off of each other. One is the Sutta on Mindfulness with Breathing, which is number 118 in the Middle Length Discourses. And let me make Sutta 121, which is the lesser or smaller or shorter discourse on emptiness, which is also in the middle length discourses. So if you want to compare them, they're close to each other. And it's one of the uh, meatiest uh, places in the scriptures. And I, I won't refer much directly to the discourse on, or either of these discourses, but there's a certain progression of practice described in the lesser discourse on sunyata, where if I um, review it very quickly, the Buddha goes through certain perceptual experiences, kind of where the mind is increasingly free of distractions. So it starts with which is kind of germane to where we are now, if you were sitting and any of the traffic noise bothered you. Well, there's a perceptual practice where one, in in this sutta, instead of perceiving town, city, village, cars, and those, the sounds and sights and all of that, one can sort of perceive forest. So it's a kind of imaginative, instead of giving attention to what's the kind of noise and distraction of the city, one can kind of imagine that one's in the forest. And the the more quiet in peace of that. And then from there it goes into more and more subtle uses of, of the mind where there's less and less attendance to things outside and more and more attendance to increasingly subtle inner experiences. So there's increasing freedom from distractions by, in some cases, sort of imagining the term used is perception, sanya, various things. But then it leads into the deeper states of samadhi, called the jhanas, and then culminates in what's called the, the signless concentration of mind, animita samadhi. Last week some of you were asking about nimita, or signs, as used for developing concentration. But this one is a kind of concentration that intentionally does not attend to any sign. That means anything that might present itself to consciousness is kind of left alone. 
um, no sign is dwelt on. And this is not, according to the sutta, a liberated state of mind, or in the big sense of liberated or awakened. Although in a kind of temporary sense, it's pretty free or empty. But it's not ultimate emptiness. But it's an intentional practice where one does not attend to, like if there's a sound, one doesn't pay any attention to the details, the qualities, or the qualia, and any of that stuff. Just the sound goes through, or a sight, or or whatever. People come to talk to you, and you kind of don't pay attention to anything. <laughs> and that's actually in the sutta, when the Buddha was tired and people were bugging him. He just kind of sit there and the people would do their thing. And he would not attend to uh, the details or perhaps the, the rigmarole, the ritual, the trivia. At some point he paid attention to some things, of course, because he was teaching. But, but this is a more subtle use of samadhi, where the mind is not letting anything distract it, grab it, control it. And then it culminates in being empty of the so-called outflows. Some translators render this term as taints. The Pali is asava, which means outflowing, which is a a welling or flowing out of the unconscious of things like greed, hatred, and delusion. Basically, through old reactivity, habits of reaction are stored in the so-called unconscious, and they can be stimulated or flow out. But when none of that is happening, that's kind of the big emptiness. And in other suttas, this kind of terminology, or very similar terminology, the end of the outflows, is standard Pali language for complete liberation. There's no more stuff left over, karmic formations, past life residue, this life residue, this morning's residue. Um, There's no residue. It's kind of all been let go, flushed out, cleaned up, purified, um, Cloroxed, whatever you want to call it. And there's just the experience of now with no more patterns or leftover reactivity, so there's no more reaction. There's just awareness and wise, compassionate response. So this lesser discourse on sunyata kind of follows this to the fullest ultimate experience of emptiness which is synonymous with Nibbāna, liberation, complete freedom. And so I want to kind of use that that flow or progression in terms of some of the things that the Buddha speaks of in the discourse on mindfulness with breathing. I've got about six um, points 
to summarize here. First, I alluded to at the end of last week's talk, there are times when we're able to relax our habit of controlling the breath. And there was some discussion about this after last week's talk. Often, consciously, unconsciously, intentionally or not, there's control. The habit of clinging, of taking things to be me and mine, is very much about control. And as long as the sense of self is around, there's going to be some control. Because self is related to wanting things. Here I am projecting myself into getting what I want. So there's some manipulation and control of the breathing. There may be a sense, I am breathing. I am doing the breathing. I am changing the breathing. I am breathing in. I am breathing out. I'm breathing in right. I'm breathing in wrong. I'm breathing in happy, I'm breathing in stressed out, I'm breathing in bored to pieces. But there's some me involved. And then, and these are quite beautiful moments, and then the beauty excites us and the me comes back, but (laughs) there are those moments when to a large extent, we, we may not quite know if it's complete, But to a large extent, the breathing is just breathing itself. It's not breathing itself out there and I'm detached. Awareness is right there in the smack dab in the middle of the breathing. And yet, the breathing is just breathing. And awareness is awareing. And that's okay. So there's the breathing. The breathing is happening by itself. Ajahn Buddhadasa called this breathing without a breather. And that is, I think, uh, called temporary experience of emptiness, freedom, voidness. Because in that, there is little or no self. Now the some of the habit patterns are not cleaned out. So like I said, you have this beautiful experience and then the concept, oh wow, this is cool. And then (laughs) there I am having the experience again. So just in really letting go of all control of the breathing, which ain't easy, uh, but And often it happens as much by itself. You can't really quite do it intentionally. It's kind of a, it's not unintentional, nor is it fully intentional. Uh, So that's one way of gaining some experience of emptiness. When the breathing is just breathing itself and awareness you know, we're not asleep or anything. Awareness is just aware. It doesn't have to be I'm aware or I'm watching. There's just awareness, mindfulness, and so on. Nobody's concentrated, but there is concentration.
another way that mindfulness with breathing is helpful for practicing emptiness is that in the third lesson or contemplation, which is experiencing all bodies, sometimes translated experiencing the whole body, that in really experiencing the breath as it is, as it flows in and out, we also experience the complete um, interdependence of the breathing with the rest of the body, how the breathing affects our bodies, our circulation, the kind of energetic structure, how the chi flows, whatever, you can talk about it in various ways. The muscle tone, um, whether the body feels happy or uncomfortable. This, This is explored in lesson three. And as we get into this interrelatedness, it's another sort of entryway into emptiness. Because the flip side of emptiness is things are interrelated, interdependent. Um, If things were selves, they could exist by themselves. When things such as the breathing, there's no breathing without a body. And there's no breathing without a living body. So there's got to be some consciousness around to sort of animate the whole thing and vice versa. So none of these can exist independently all by themselves. So in observing and penetrating this interdependent nature of breathing, body, and mind that can enter into experience of emptiness. And this this happens more easily as we allow the breathing to be deep and full and relaxed. And as we allow the breath, as we learn to let go of tension and really let the breath flow in uh, naturally, deeply, freely, and out, there's a corresponding relaxing in the body, a kind of rebalancing of energies and those kind of things, and the mind can settle. So as I was talking about last week, the mind comes together in samadhi. And these three are happening together. It's not like there's, you know, this first, then that second, and then samadhi third. But they're more like, um, I forget the term, but there's kind of positive feedback loops among these things. Or if you like, they're all just three elements of one process. And the more we see that and feel it in our breathing body and mind, that's another kind of entryway into emptiness. The mind isn't, I'm not concentrating the mind. Concentration is happening along with these other things which foster it. 
and vice versa. So the more we pay attention to these kind of relational things, the more we can slip out of the I'm doing it, it's my breathing, and so on. As that process uh, develops, this, this is a related, but I'll, I'll mark it off as a third way of practicing emptiness through mindfulness with breathing is that as what I've just described proceeds, there's a calming of the nivarana or hindrances. And one, one, one way of talking about emptiness is the mind is empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. Well, the hindrances are the more subtle moods it's not full-blown greed, anger, and delusion, but more subtle moods that sort of drift up out of the unconscious even when the mind is quite calm or still. So you may not actively be planning and thinking or worrying about tomorrow, but there's just this kind of bubbliness to the mind. Or... You're not flat out lazy, but there's a kind of dullness or lack of energy in the mind. When these nivarana are not present, that's a kind of emptiness. The mind is empty of the hindrances. And that parallels some of the things in the, the lesser discourse on, on shunyata that I just summarized, that and we can attend to that. Oh, yeah. This experience, it's not my experience, of course, but this experience is empty or free of the hindrances. And just to notice that. Or maybe there's some dullness, but it's at least empty of uh, sensuousness or restlessness or whatever. So it's kind of you develop this way of paying attention that, okay, some stuff's going on, but other stuff, like maybe the hindrances are there, but the cruder defilements, the more, the more um, intense anger's not there. There might be some irritation, but there's no anger. And then later, there's not even irritation. So that's a kind of emptiness. And when the mind is empty of nivarana, that's actually when it's in pretty good shape for, for vipassana. And so that can help lead us into the real insight into the empty nature of, of mind, breathing body and what have you. If you like... This is kind of um, for extra credit because in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha doesn't mention the jhanas and this came up last week, so I'll only refer to it briefly. But if you want to do extra credit work and develop the jhanas, then there's even a, a deeper level of samadhi which is even more empty of 
of the so-called defilements or of reactivity. And by the way, the Buddha sometimes referred to the jhanas as nibbana here and now, or uh, dhamma nibbana, which means that kind of the dhamma you can, the nibbana you can experience right in front of your face. Or Ajahn Buddha Dasa called it nibbana at the tip of your nose. It's not permanent, but for a while, all the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion, egoism, selfishness are dormant. And so the mind is cool and free for a bit. So that more or less means what we could call um, temporary emptiness. So kind of these, can you see the sort of progression into moving in the direction of the fuller, more complete experience of emptiness. So I hope these are making emptiness seem accessible. It may not be, you know, big fireworks type experience because it's empty. <laughs> it was uh you know, a lot of us spend a while looking for, you know, the big, the big bang. And it often kind of, it's more subtle than that. So that's one of the ways reflecting on emptiness can be useful. Next, in the sutta, there's a number of lessons or contemplations concerning the feelings or vetana. And this can be used to approach emptiness because the feelings are a big trigger for our reactivity. I, I won't summarize that here due to time, but as a practice, in, in Anapanasati, there are, we experience and contemplate especially the very delicious, pleasant feelings that occur as a byproduct of meditation. They're not the goal, but they happen. And if we don't do anything stupid with them, they're, they're healthy and safe. And to avoid being stupid about them, um, which most of us will do the first uh, few hundred times, because they're really nice, um, is to start to see them as waves on the surface of the mind. We tend to take these things as, you know, my big payoff, all those years of retreat, and finally, you know, <laughs> I'm in bliss. I can write home to my twin sister, and she won't think I'm a, a fool for all that time spent on retreat. Um, we tend to get involved in the pleasant feelings. And of course, we do that a lot with pain. We take pain very seriously, very personally. But when we can start to see feeling as just like waves on the surface of the mind, they're kind of just these ripples of experience going by. If we can see them that way, 
and we don't we don't take them to be the mind or the nature of the mind or the depth of the mind they're just these ripples they exist in their provisional way but they're not the meaning the essence the purpose of our lives and from there that they're not me there's happiness fine but it's not me it's not mine it's it's just happiness it it happens get used to it um or it's pain or it's a little bit of discomfort or whatever but to see them just as ripples just waves or phenomena so there's a number of lessons in anapanasati that foster that awareness and realization from here if we skip ahead to lesson 12 which is about liberating the mind the meditator trains oneself breathing in and liberating the mind one trains oneself breathing out and liberating the mind this is in some ways parallel to what i talked about earlier as the signless concentration of mind animita samadhi because whatever presents itself to experience a uh, lesson 12 within the the teaching on anapanasati is about letting it go just let it go let it go let it go anything floats by and kind of sticks peel it off let it go it floats by just let it go by one doesn't have to attend to anything just whatever's happening let it go there may be there's probably some ongoing awareness of the breath but it's just flowing through and one's not trying to grasp it or hold it in any way so that's i think um a more subtle way of being aware and mindful it's not yet fully liberated and there's a kind of intentionality to it you know it's kind of like not getting involved not getting involved not getting involved which could go too far into you know detachment and uh avoidance and escape but as a practice just to be able to let something float by kind of you know you're you're imagine you're a frog and you let the flies go by without sticking your tongue out or those dogs that chase cars you let the car go by and you don't chase it um this brings me to um the last major point I'll make which concerns collectively the final four lessons of anapanasati what's sometimes called the fourth tetrad which is where the practice of mindfulness with breathing becomes more purely vipassana especially vipa- the experience of vipassana not not vipassana is some technique you do 
but the experience of clear seeing of insight itself. So I'm going to rephrase the the last four contemplations, which in the sutta are contemplating impermanence, contemplating fading away, contemplating quenching, contemplating relinquishment. But we can see in those four, um, one, experiencing or having insight into the empty nature of, say, breathing or body or feelings or consciousness. Some of the stuff that we have learned to investigate in this practice, when there's a direct experience of their impermanence, their kind of conditioned nature, that can deepen into the experience of their emptiness. Things are happening, but these things, the thingness is kind of empty. Um, It's, again, provisional. It changes. It doesn't last. What we call things aren't independent things. So the traditional Mahayana metaphor of the, the net of Indra, they're more a web of relationships. So when there's real insight into the emptiness of breathing, feelings, mind, then staying with that and letting it deepen. So we can speak of the contemplation of the emptiness of different phenomena that arise to our awareness. And sometimes the way insight works is it just is about a specific thing. But there are times when the immediacy and the intimacy of that kind of deepen and expand out to encompass a lot more. And there's kind of a a more profound vision of everything is empty. So it might have started with just the breathing is empty, but then the breathing's empty and the body's empty and sensations in the body are empty and the awareness of these is empty and the pleasantness or unpleasantness of it's empty. And then sort of, it's all empty. So there's this more universal insight or jnana, knowledge, which is experiential, not conceptual, of emptiness. And then one sort of dwells in that awareness or realization and watches the consequences like lessons 13 and or 14 and 15 in the sutra on mindfulness with breathing are about this what are the consequences of experiencing emptiness seeing the emptiness of stuff of phenomena well it has a profound effect on how the mind works and what we can metaphorically refer to as the 
karmic residue of past reactions. Some big shifts take place and reactivity that used to be there habitually isn't there or it's much less. So these are some of the consequences of emptiness. So not only is there the seeing of the emptiness in phenomena, and not so much phenomena out there, but stuff in here. And then the mind is empty of some of its reactivity. Or we can think of this as the eye patterns, the patterns to grasp and perceive and react to things in terms of I, me, mine. Some of this is releasing. Or use your metaphor, it's, it's getting killed. Some people like the warrior metaphors. Or it's getting purified or um, released. And then that can sort of fulfill itself in what in some places the Buddha called dwelling in emptiness. There was once um, Venerable Sariputta paid respects to the Buddha and the Buddha said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm dwelling in emptiness. And the Buddha said, oh, that's cool. I dwell in emptiness also. And so they're both kind of doing okay. Um, Dwelling in sunyata. Sunyata sunyata vihara is the Pali term. And so this kind of process culminates in dwelling in emptiness, which means nibbana, liberation. There's no dwelling in freedom from not only um, present or current freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, but what Sariputta and the Buddha were talking about was, and there ain't no more stuff waiting to sneak in or bubble up or take over. All those old patterns or the asavas have been cleaned up or released. So at this level, I would like to suggest earlier in terms of this sutran, the lesser sutran emptiness, I spoke of being more and more free of distractions. And probably the most subtle distraction is the very subtle uh, tendency to experience things in terms of self, which is perceptual. And this is a distraction from Nibbana. And it kind of, this, often it's just extremely subtle, but there's kind of me over here and experience out there. And so there's some little bit of separation or distance or two-ness. Well, when that's gone, then, and gone for good, then, as far as I can tell, um, and I'm not quite dwelling in emptiness with uh, the Venerable Sariputra, the Buddha, and 
their colleagues. But as far as I can tell, that's, um, that's the ultimate emptiness. And I'll conclude the talk at this point. Um, we'll, we'll just take a minute or two for those who need to get going. This is a good time to do so. But if you'd like to stay for the discussion, um, in about a minute we'll be open for questions and comments. next year <laughs> so is there any of that you'd like to talk about yes uh, uh, in your talk and um, in these teachings there's it seems to me there's often a, a non sequitur between saying that the self is relational, it's composed of changing phenomena. And from that it's concluded that there's no self. Right. And that doesn't follow, it seems to me. I mean, this uh, meditation center was substantially renovated, mm -hmm. but we still think of it as the same meditation center. If it were bulldozed and a parking lot was put in here, at that point we would say it's no longer the same meditation center. Mm -hmm. Our bodies, you know, I lose a fingernail, I don't say it's not my finger anymore, but at a certain point, you know, things happen to people, they go into comas and so on. At that point we say, it, he's no longer the same person. The identity of anything, ourselves, the self of the building, it seems to be related to, seems to be dependent on our purposes and our interests. And you can, that's fully compatible with recognizing that it's changing and doesn't have all and only the same characteristics. My car has a new battery, it's still my car. So it seems to me that to say that it's, the self is empty is a better description than saying there's no self. And from the emptiness of the self, meaning that there mm -hmm. are a lot of contingent circumstances, it doesn't seem to lead to no self. And it seems that in the larger picture, suffering comes not so much, I wonder, uh, not so much from believing that there's a self, but from getting into the wrong kind of relationship to the self. Right. Well, the um, no self is not, in my opinion, not the best translation. And so what you were talking about, we would say, are the convention is conventional self. And... Conventionally, sure, there are selves, there are buildings, and conventionally it's your car because, you know, you paid for it, or you're paying the bills, um, you fix it, and so on. 
So conventionally, it's yours. Conventionally, that's your body. But ultimately, it's not. So it depends, you know, part of, part of Buddhist practice is being with both levels of reality, the conventional and the, the ultimate. So we could say um, your conventional self is ultimately empty of self. Is that dualism of the conventional and the ultimate itself empty? Um, I don't know. I don't, yeah. Does, what, there are lots of ways the word dualism is used. So if we have two levels of reality and that means dualism, okay. But if it's just a way of talking about an experience that isn't necessarily dualistic, then... Well, by dualism, I mean, you're, you're saying, yes, self down here at this one level, but at this very different level, this other radically different level. Right, but they're both happening right here at the same time. But I'm not saying, is that distinction itself empty? Yes. It has no inherent existence. So then it can't be really relied on to distinguish the self that we have from the self that we don't have. Right, because there's no self that we have and there's no self that we don't have. Or there is a self that we have because we can't appeal to some non-empty distinction. Right, right. This is kind of getting philosophical, I think. And the point is, as you were saying at one point, if... If you posit self and can relate to what you consider to be self in a way that there's no grasping to that, in a way that causes greed, hatred, delusion, egoism, and all that, then there won't be suffering. The claim of Buddhist teachings is if you do posit self, then it's very easy to grasp once we consider that this has an, some independent reality of its own, as opposed to calling this the CIMC, which is a linguistic thing. But when we take the linguistic naming and then start to attribute more and more reality to it, at some point we start to hold on to it in ways which lead to emotional possessiveness or, you know, if somebody criticizes CIMC and I'm a loyal member, I get upset or I've been coming here for 10 years and I don't get the respect I deserve or whatever. If we have this construct that we start to give more and more reality to, then some some point we tend to get stuck and have feelings of ownership, possession, control, expectation, and so on. So, And then ultimately it's not about stuff out there, but it's our feelings, our body, our thoughts, awareness itself. So, so I, in early Buddhism it's not treated as a philosophical thing, but a tool for letting go. And if we're able to completely let go, like 
um, Ramana Maharshi, I think, is an interesting example because he's he's grounded to. He wasn't a big time scholar of Vedanta in Hindu teachings, but seemed he had a good familiarity with the Vedanta and Advaita teachings. So tum, sometimes he spoke very much in a a non-self way, but other times he would talk about the self. And you know, I again, I don't know. I I don't know what his experience is, but perhaps for him it didn't matter what you know what you called it. So okay, um, here, there, and then back there. Go ahead. The, um, is there a volitional quality to dwelling in emptiness versus you know accidental emptiness occurring and it only being sustained? Well, I think there's, first of all, there's the kind of accidental. And this the term accidental or coincidental isn't used with emptiness, but it's used with various synonyms of nibbana. Um, tatanga niroda, tatanga viraga. So it's kind of an accidental or a conditional. And that... Um, I th- I believe happens in our lives where f- for a moment you know the ego hasn't kicked in and we're not reacting and there's this kind of bit of freedom and then something happens so that's unintentional and then the lesser discourse on shunyata that I was referring to some of that is a lot of its intentional practices so you're kind of moving deeper and deeper into emptiness where there's less and less distraction going on. But it's all still somewhat um, intentional. But then the the dwelling in emptiness that Venerable Sariputta and the Buddha referred to, I think that's unintentional. It's just the nature of Buddhas to dwell in emptiness. Well, you could call it an accident, but, um, well, in the traditional teachings, the only way you don't get distracted is by very profound insight into what's what's happening. Both what happens when we get caught up in things by taking them to be me and mine, and what happens when we don't. Mm-hmm. At the 
there aren't things, or at least there aren't selves, that have or could have, that own or could own anything, if there are, sometimes people speak about a process view or a view of things arising that mm -hmm. way, and, but not in a way that anything could persist or be annihilated. But that might be a second thing, whether historical or conceptual or on an absolute, rather, an ultimate, rather than conventional level. And then one might extend this view to absolutely everything from self and say this applies to everything. So what uh, is that? How does that fit in with what you're saying? Do you suggest have I lost you? A bit, yeah. <laughs> I kind of got confused by the going talking about the historical stuff and then your descriptions of properties not having self or selves not having properties. Mainly, there was, you know, some metaphysics creeped in, but it, it wasn't emphasized. I mean, one gets some, beyond something purely practical if one says that we are the sort of things that own or could own anything that have right. or that could have, that could survive or not survive. Mm -hmm. If we're, if we think that this notion of properties requiring or having or possibly having something that has them, this doesn't make, this, if this is not well-founded notion. Uh-huh. Um, I think some of what you're getting at are things that have been debated by various schools of Buddhism, um, which the Tibetans have categorized quite a bit. And my take is that those categorizations or the more philosophical developments of the teaching on emptiness can be useful if they are not just in the realm of thought, but they help us to kind of do the move through the process or whatever that I've tried to outline where you know the mind is increasingly empty of the crude stuff and it's still experiencing the more subtle stuff and then ultimately in that we reach a point where we see through that and there's no more no more clinging so if the the conceptual work should should contribute to that. If it gets in the way or distracts, then it's not it's not skillful. So I couldn't follow all the details of what you said, but they they do sound a lot like the various you know like do do things have properties or not? I I believe that's I don't know what school, but you know, different schools took different positions and then others would argue or critique them. Um, to me, at some point, it's a lot about words and um, 
sometimes I don't, can't keep track of what all the words mean. Although, usually I try. So, way in the back. Yeah, could you speak for a moment about the uh, relationship of emptiness and compassion? Because you know, you deal with the concept of feelings. It says in the Hobbes Sutra, feelings are empty, like all the aggregates are. Right. But that almost seems, in a way, if you think about it, take it a certain way, if you're engaged emotionally or reactively, right. you know, compassion comes in there. But if you're talking about it, you know, one would seem that you would let go of these emotional reactivity instances. And, right. Well, first of all, feelings in the Heart Sutra or is one of the five aggregates, and compassion's not usually considered a feeling, but it's it's within the five aggregates, um, just as wisdom and things like that are. So we can distinguish tentatively between um, the compassion of a Buddha that comes out of emptiness and the more um, fabricated or intentional compassion that many of us try to practice. So when, when we really come from a selfless place, compassion flows naturally. The belief is that that's our deeper nature that compassion is a deeper capacity of, of human beings. And when there's no self to obstruct that, it flows naturally. When there's suffering, compassion flows towards it. And, and so wisdom, wisdom is not so intentional. It's just a seeing of things as they are. Whereas for most of us, we, we still work on it. And then as we work on it, our compassion is often entangled in some levels of self and even selfishness. And so our part of our practice is being aware when I am being compassionate, and especially when I am being compassionate as much for my benefit <laughs> as somebody else's. And then also just being naturally compassionate to oneself without making that narcissistic. So.
Well, part of it's, I think, what you're talking about has to do with acclimatizing. We've learned in our psychological, emotional, conceptual development to depend on self or me or in various structures to survive and to, to protect ourselves and all that. And so it's, it can be tricky to think that we're sort of, if that seems threatened in some way, you know, how am I going to survive? Who's going to protect me if I don't? If there's no me, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> so, you know. And so part of it's the process we've talked about, and I think you're alluding to that, is just getting used to it and getting comfortable and then exploring it that when... You know, for example, somebody who's kind of used to being tough and in other people's face as a defensive stance, well, it'll take them some time to learn to, you can be safe without doing that. And then, so, so part of it's an acclimatizing. And learning when that reaction, some anxiety comes up or whatever, that's part of the process. And just allows some space around the anxiety. It, it happens and sort of let it happen without getting fully sucked up into it. So basically it's, you know, we the usual practices that are taught in a place like this, mindfulness, developing uh kindness and compassion, being able to calm and stabilize and focus the mind, practices that encourage insight. We learn to do them not just on retreat, but then we have a daily practice. And then from the daily sittings or walkings, we start to bring those skills and virtues into daily life. So so the a big challenge is to sort of partly what I think can happen on retreat is some nifty things happen, but we sort of enjoy them more than understand them. And then even the mind can remember what happened and sort of build a little self around it rather than when those nifty things happen, checking them out and developing more and more understanding how they happened, then it's easier to return both on retreat, in daily sitting practice, and then even you're waiting for a bus and you can sort of just come back and release. And you're not holding the world out and you're not grabbing at it, reacting to it. You're just kind of there in the midst of Boston or Calcutta or wherever you are. Okay, we've got maybe time for a couple more. So one, and then there's somebody over there.
settle um, conceptually is how how do you not fall into indifference? How you know when you're watching something go by and you're not reacting? In what way is is that not indifference? Because it seems somehow it feels fundamental to this that indifference is not the right place to be, and yet. Right. I don't know how you do one without the other. Right. Well, it's, it's the difference between equanimity and indifference. Though though the Pali word upeka has been translated as indifferent. So it's kind of, again, compassion, caring with self or comparing, or a caring, a kind of difference between not caring, which is sort of indifference, which is an ego stance. I don't care. You know, there's a kind of detachment or or avoidance, you know, where we sort of deny that we have hearts that can be touched by suffering and pain, our own and others. You know, we don't want to suffer. You know, and that's that's a basic fundamental um I think it's built into our genetic structure and shows on all levels. Life does not enjoy suffering, except when we're really confused and masochistic. So, but we can take stances that sort of deny that, where we pretend we don't care. So indifference, I think, is something like that, and it's still, it's an ego stance. <clears throat> so what is the, I guess my real issue is, is understanding what the quality of equanimity is. Well, it's, it's two words that help me are participatory. It's to be in the midst of the flow, not trying to stand outside of it. And so it's in the flow and yet within the flow, it's, it's just flowing. It's not adding to the flow with its reactions. So as you, are, you were speaking, I was thinking of the image that came to my mind is like you're a pond and a bug goes skating across the pond. And you don't reach out and try to kill the bug. Or you don't go, oh, how sad the bug left. You know, the bug just goes by and, you know, the pond is the pond. It's not taking a stance about it. It's not making a judgment. You know, you're not better or worse because the bug came or the bug left or whatever. And there are suttas where the Buddha uses the metaphor of making one's mind like the earth. You know, people spit on it, they pee on it, they do all kinds of things to the earth, and the earth doesn't react. It's just earth. And then the other elements of water, fire, and wind are are used in the same way. Until there's an earthquake. Huh? Until there's an earthquake. Right. Well, that's... It's not quite the earth element. That's a... <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> Metaphors have limits. Um, 
um, and so participatory but not reactive so and uh, intimacy is another word that I find helpful so the experience is very intimate whereas indifference there's an attempt to kind of separate did you still have something? Okay, so it's nine o'clock, that's the traditional closing time. So thank you all for coming, and uh, tea is served downstairs, and hope to see you again somewhere, (laughs) Chicago, Barrie, Cambridge, Thailand. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.